it all started about in 2007. There was a small project starting up in Barco. Projectors were still using lamps, sometimes LED, but mostly lamps all over the place. And uh, well, there was all these new concepts were flying around that a laser would, would be the ultimate light source for, for projectors. Bringing many benefits and there were a lot of promises. So a small project was started within Barco to explore all these promises. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here once again with my colleague and co-host Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro. And this week we are going to be going over all of the results from the box office last weekend, including the release of two new titles to hit the market. Madam Webb from Sony and Paramount's Bob Marley, One Love. Divergent results on two new releases. And this weekend, we don't have too many new movies coming out, but we will be going over the new releases scheduled for this week. And later on in the feature segment, in honor of the technical portion of the Academy Awards ceremony, we will be talking to a trio of engineers from Barco Cinema who came together to bring and develop the technology that is responsible for RGB laser projection, a technical conversation about innovation and how the standards in movie going keep on being raised. So don't forget to tune in for the second half of this episode for that conversation. But Rebecca, let's start the way we always start. Another weekend already well behind us. Did you get to go to the movies? Because it's we're now approaching late February And unfortunately, we need to break this cold spell of us Mm -hmm. not going to the movies. Dune is on the horizon. More movies on the horizon. Like you mentioned, Daniel, this week, not a lot came out last week. So instead of uh, catching something new, Eric and I went out to the Museum of the Moving Image up in Queens, which is screening their snub series of, um, you know, various films that should have gotten more award season attention that they did. But I caught Scorsese's New York, New York with De Niro and Liza Minnelli. I think this is using the money and the goodwill and the cachet of Taxi Driver. He's like, I'm going to do a an MGM style musical, but just it's strange. I, I know you mentioned you haven't seen it, but if you think of it as like, oh, what's, what would be an MGM movie? You know, big splashy musical, but with like a Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro character in the middle. It's exactly how you think that's going to be, for better or <laughs> that worse. That grim, that grim and dark. There's some Liza Minnelli is fantastic, but I've discovered if I'm going to watch some kind of uh, a Star Is Born musical type of thing, I kind of want to like the main character a little bit. And De Niro's scary in some of these scenes, well, man. De Niro's he's great. Scary the acting's in, all great. He's extremely frightening in any role that mm-hmm. Scorsese gives him. And I'm just going to go over a list of the Scorsese-De Niro collaborations because Scorsese-De Niro is a rabbit hole that I feel we should definitely explore because mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. run this podcast and why not? Let's go ahead and do that. It's been a slow box office. This is how we're going to fill time. We have uh, obviously Mean Streets starting the conversation in 1973. Mm-hmm. And that, I only watched that for the first time actually fairly recently. And it's like you can tell right off the bat this is going to be a love story for the ages, this Scorsese and this De Niro. Well, I love how he introduces that horribly likable and also deeply dislikable character, which is, by the way, all of De Niro's characters in his collaborations with, with Scorsese. But the New York, New York, he's more just 
just straight up dislikable. Just straight in New York, up an New York. asshole. Well, yeah. in 73, he gets introduced with the Rolling Stones Jumpin' Jack Flash and that wonderful like Scorsese and the Stones you know, collaborations that they do whenever he brings them into the soundtrack. That's the first glimpse you get to see of De Niro in a Scorsese movie. I think that sets him up wonderfully. That guy sucks. I mean, that character that he plays in Mean Streets, that dude sucks. Completely oh, screws yeah. over the Harvey Keitel character. But there's something magnetic about his performance, right? If he this just guy's draws your you friend, in. you would definitely not want to hang around that guy in person. But yeah, like so a lot of the best film characters are like that sometimes. Like I would not want to know this character in person, but from afar. From afar, it's fine. And then we just go straight to like, maybe there's some redeeming qualities to Travis Bickle, who obviously is the main character in Taxi Driver, which is the next collaboration, 1976. And then Travis Bickle just turns out he's insane. No, he's just a, absolutely it's a, it's a horror. It's a horror movie. And if some people have... Uh, you know, done what they would later do with Fight Club and try to, you know, think of him as some kind of anti-hero to aspire to. That's on them. Yeah, that's on them. That's <laughs> that's in the world of dating red flags. How you read Taxi Driver is an easy test. But I love how Taxi Driver, the first third of it's Taxi great. Driver. It's great. I love it. It's a film noir. The first third is like a moody film noir. The second third with Sybil Shepherd, it's like a weird romantic comedy where you kind of want them to get together. And then the last third with like child prostitution with Jodie Foster and the pimp played by Harvey Keitel and just the Hell's Kitchen underworld and the shootout. It's a straight up horror movie. It, is, it just it goes is a into the movie. depths like, of hell by the end. And De Niro is again, not redeemable. There is nothing redeeming <laughs> about this character <laughs> by the end of that movie. And then, of course, you mentioned this at the start. He follows that with the only collaboration I've never seen, by the way, I've never seen New York, New York. I've seen all the other collaborations. But apparently this is just like the worst character that De Niro plays in a Scorsese. I mean, part. I don't know. Maybe, well, no, he doesn't murder anybody. So, you know, he's not the worst. But like the opening scene is like a VJ Day celebration. And he, uh, his character is just hitting on Liza Minnelli's character in a way that goes on like way too long. Like I've been in that situation and like that, e that ends in yikes. somebody getting murdered and it's played off. Like the first 30 minutes are him like aggressively hitting on her, even though she's not interested. And then like stalking her around the country. <laughs> At one point he says the line, um, I wouldn't have to hurt you if you'd just come with me. Oh no. Like, oh, a lot no, of, a lot of aggressive grabbing and yeah. Well, we go from that to just straight up like, like a man in the process of total self-destruction in Raging Bull in 1980, mm -hmm. where there's actual scenes of domestic violence and, and just a horrible it's the same, man. It's the same character. That, that's just wonderfully built by, again, by, by De Niro, who absolutely nails a performance of terrible men. And these, this typecasting that he's been able to sell throughout the decades. We follow that in 83 with The King of Comedy, which, you know, a lovable misanthrope to a certain extent. But in the second half, of King of Comedy, I think Rupert Pupkin, the protagonist played by De Niro in this movie, goes from being lovable to being just straight up scary. You kind of don't want to be around this I've guy. I've never seen this one. I have made it. Oh, it's it, so good. I have made it, it's so I good. think, maybe like 15, 20 minutes in. And then I was like, this is uncomfortable. Very, this is uncomfortable. very much so. I need to I need to try it again, definitely. It's insane <laughs> that I've seen Well, after New York, New York, Joker you might want to wait a little bit. King of Comedy, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, not the easiest one. And then we have to wait till 1990 when De Niro comes back playing a gangster role in Goodfellas. Again, a dislikable character, but not unhinged, at least. Charismatic, very charismatic. 
charismatic, but still brooding and very violent. 1991, if you want Unhinged, this one wins. Unhinged De Niro, does it get more unhinged than 1991's Cape Fear? Ooh. Uh, that's a he went one. he went off the deep end on that one and God and bless I him for it. it. Uh, yeah, that's again a very menacing character. Him smoking a cigar in the back of that movie theater, mm-hmm. cackling uncontrollably. And it is like it's a very sleazy update on the original film. Like it works w- within the context of the film totally. Like it's the closest Martin Scorsese will ever come to the cinematic masterpiece that is Wild Things. <laughs> we'll, I joke, we'll, but we'll there's similar. We'll save Wild like, Things for another time. I do love Wild <laughs> Things. Yes. Uh, I don't even know the director. That's what, 1998, 99? Filmed at the rival high school of my high school in Miami. We'll get into that some other time. Then we've got 95 Casino. Again, a brooding mobster type guy. You see, he's, you know, I think he simmered down after simmered Cape down. Fear a little bit. You need the a- first scene is like, there's no spoiler here. It's the first scene. It's him like getting partially burned in a malfunctioning car bomb in, in Vegas in a strip mall. And like, again, the story just goes downhill for that character from there. Uh, from that, we have to wait until 2019 to maybe the saddest ending of any of these abusive men characters in the Scorsese filmography, The Irishman. And I didn't think you could hit a further nadir than what happens to Jake LaMotta at the end of Raging Bull, where he's just like overweight, half drunk, like half reciting bad rhymes in a comedy club. It gets worse in The Irishman. That's a sad. And it works in part because it is building on the, you know, De Niro-Scorsese collaboration. That character, we've seen him before. We've seen him in different guises. So we kind of feel like we know him to a certain degree, even though he does, you know, kill people. But it's a brutal ending for that character. Brutal, oh my God, it's brutal rough. ending. His, yeah. None of his kids ever talking to him. He's going to die alone in a nursing home. Like, that's just depressing as hell. <laughs> yeah, that final shot is haunting. And then talking about haunting, his supporting performance, for which he's nominated for an Academy Award this year in Killers of the Flower Moon, <laughs> is great. Another, like, dark, evil, brooding, not unhinged, but a very controlled rage that De Niro puts together in this role that uh, that Scorsese gave him. He does really, really well. I think it's the best performance in the film, actually. Yeah. You know what? It reminds me of, uh, it's a very John Huston in Chinatown. Ooh, great call. Because it's call. like, yes. I don't know how you're being so scary while still not raising your voice and being calm and all plausible deniability, but it's terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. And that's our 10-minute appreciation of Robert De Niro rules in Martin Scorsese movies. Uh, We do have to talk about the current slate of films because we did have two new movies open at the box office. Divergent results here for Paramount's Bob Marley One Love and Sony's Madam Web. Before we launch into Madam Web, which is the bad news part of that coin, Tell me you were keeping up with the train wreck that was star Dakota Johnson's I Don't Want to Be Here press tour for Madam Web. It, it was astonishingly I Don't Want to Be Here-ness from the start. Yeah, but in a way that uh, I would rather have her style of I Didn't Want to Be Here-ness. Well, so just, you know, talk about it rather than the boring, like, oh, I'm going to smile and give three word answers and then leave. She at least gave us some interesting stuff. Oh, I'm not saying it was bad. I think it was one of the best things we can say about a movie that we probably won't be talking about. And honestly, maybe it's further. the best thing that could have happened for Madam Web, because according to the reviews and, and you know the Metacritic score and all that, it wasn't going to draw people in on 
word of mouth about how amazing it is, but maybe a notable uh, a notable marketing campaign might make some people curious. Uh, well, uh, not enough people, as yeah. we saw from the opening weekend, opening in second place to 15 million on the Monday-Friday range. Once we get into the estimates, including the President's Day holiday, we're looking at $23 million plus for Madam Webb. It is the lowest opening weekend on a three-day basis for a female-led superhero movie. Now, let's be very clear here. That doesn't mean that this is a problem of female-led superhero movies. I think it's a problem of poorly made it's a Sony. female-led it's a Sony yeah. superhero movies. Just because there are women in it doesn't mean the movie's any good. It doesn't mean that female audiences are like, oh my God, are you serious? There's a female superhero? Let's buy 18 tickets. No, the movie has to perform. I don't think anyone involved in this movie came off thinking that uh, the final result was something to be proud of. No, definitely not. But more on the ambiguous side of things, Bob Marley, One Love, a biopic, not in the traditional sense of Bob Marley. It, it follows one uh, you know, kind of concrete period in his life when he's left Jamaica and then he goes back and, and it triggers a very you know, decisive, important moment in his career. This is one, Daniel, that you can check out boxofficepro.com for an interview with the screenwriters. But I really, I really kind of didn't know what to think about this one because we have had over the last two years several high-profile biopics of musical legends that just kind of came and didn't do anything. I Want to Dance with Somebody, the Whitney Houston biopic. We had Jennifer Hudson in Respect, the Aretha Franklin biopic. But this one was able to overcome that, I don't want to say curse, because that's definitely overstating things. But it did boast the number one midweek Valentine's Day opening ever, uh, getting 14 million, around 3,500 screens. I mean, I feel like what the marketing was going for and what succeeded for them is, you know, a message of love and it doesn't, it's not too heavy. It's it's a very positive, affirming message from Bob Marley that I think appealed to people around Valentine's Day. And it's not a bad result here, once again, from Paramount, which has a very lean slate this year, but is performing pretty well with mid-sized hits within the titles that they've had. Earlier this year, they came out with the musical adaptation of Mean Girls. That's already made $71 million in North America chugging along. Sony, on the other hand, you see them struggling here with Madam Web, with their Spider-Man cinematic universe, whatever they're calling it. That's really not been working out the way they wanted to. But meanwhile, Sony, you look back to last year, the week over week performance of a movie like A Man Called Otto. You look at them this year, the week over week performance of a movie like Anyone But You which has now made nearly $85 million over nine weeks at the box office, they know how to keep a movie that isn't built to be a blockbuster with steady legs. The issue with Sony right now is we're waiting for the blockbuster. You need both. <laughs> yes. They have the, the tough part of the equation. They've got down perfectly by this point. So it's, it's tough to say. So I do think we're going to have to wait until what, late mid-March when that Ghostbusters Afterlife sequel, Ghostbusters Frozen Empire comes out. So we can see how Sony performs with a high profile IP that maybe has a little bit more writing on it. I'm going to just scratch off Madam Web. It was something that didn't work. Morbius didn't work either. Good luck to Craven the Hunter coming out in 
the dead zone that is kids coming back to school season in like late August of the summer. Let's see how that works out. But there are other pieces in the puzzle of Sony's releases that doesn't make me want to ring the alarm just yet. I think they can figure out the tough releases like the Anyone But You's, like the Man Called Autos. We just have to wait for the right high-profile IP to gauge their performance. Yeah, I mean, and we're looking at them this upcoming year after Ghostbusters, Frozen Empire. They have Garfield uh, movie, or rather titled The Garfield Movie, coming out at the end of May. I mean, I feel like Chris Pratt in the lead role, uh, this one feels like it, it could it could uh, could hit among child audiences. Then you have uh, the yet untitled Bad Boys sequel, which seems like something that could generate some word of mouth, become that kind of moderate budget action film with legs. Of course, we're all just waiting for the third Miles Morales Spider-Verse movie, but we'll have to, whenever they're done making it. God knows how long for that to come out. Yeah. And looking forward to this weekend, Rebecca, not too many wide releases. The one that does jump out at me, taking half of the Coen Brothers formula, which is just Coen Brother, Ethan Coen, co-written by his partner, Trisha Cook, is Drive Away Dolls. This is a title that I was very much looking forward to seeing last year. Focus Features ends up bumping this movie to this weekend, coming out February 23rd, because of the writer's strike, the actor's strike. It's finally hitting theaters. This is going to be the first time I pay for a ticket to see a movie in 2024. Ooh. I've been to press screenings. That doesn't count, no, it doesn't right? Because it's free. I mean, it's a different, it's a different vibe. But as a like ticket-paying customer, finally, it took until the end of February to get me in there. Ethan Cohen is enough of a reason to get me excited about anything. I'm looking forward to this one. I can't wait to see it. Eric saw it. He enjoyed it. Do you, do you know what the MacGuffin is in the film? I know nothing about this film. Other okay. than like the little bit of footage that we saw at CinemaCon last year, which I think was like a minute, I'm going in completely blind. Do I want to know what the MacGuffin is? No, you want to you experience it in real time. Perfect. I'm looking forward. But yeah, that's good. You're getting back into giving the movie theaters money. Though you did mention before we started recording, uh, you're trying to get a PLF ticket for Dune too. <laughs> well, I mentioned this is the first <laughs> ticket I'm buying because I've been trying to buy an IMAX or Dolby Cinema ticket for Dune Part 2. I can't find one in New York City. Yeah, anecdotally, we're hearing those, those pre-sales are nuts. It's great news. I mean, it's wonderful to, to hear from so many of our colleagues here in the exhibition business that Dune 2 has been performing so well, especially these premium formats. I can't wait for that movie to open. The press campaign of Zendaya wearing something amazingly, you know, crazy. Well, she had the Maria, like the Maria the robot costume from Fritz Lang's yeah, Metropolis. Yeah, the Thierry Except it had like an exposed butt if I remember correctly. It That's did, what it Zendaya did. went with. It's like, we're going to have a silver-plated Maria the Robot with exposed butt. That's how she shows up the red carpets. I dig it's it, by the way. It's called fashion. <laughs> it's called fashion. I think there should be more exposed butt robot costumes for both genders at all red carpets. Mm-hmm. That would get me more interested in red carpets. That's basically what we've got for the news segment here on this week's episode. But before we sign off, a couple of other bits and pieces in terms of goings on in the cinema market. Rebecca, Unique, the trade association representing European cinema, reporting a 24% box office growth across European territories. That's really good. 
Yeah, and of course, that's an average across all of the territories. Some territories are, are going to see a stronger recovery from others. You look at Germany, for example, uh, their year-on-year total admissions increased uh, 19%, a box office up 24%. France, a 19% increase uh, in admissions since 2022 in the UK, an 8.5% increase. So yeah, you can uh, you can check out our website or, or, or that of Unique to see the more detailed information on how this breaks down. But yeah, 24% box office growth compared to last year, you know, in a time when the strikes obviously were very Hollywood-centric and it wouldn't necessarily have affected local productions overseas, but like it is all connected. I mean, I, I can definitely see and, and have heard that, you know, international production, you know, also kind of took a hit because of the strikes, because people are like, well, I don't want to get on SAG's bad side. And, you know, I might want to work with them one day. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good growth here that we're seeing across Europe. Hopefully we can see those results sustain themselves throughout 2024. And domestically, a couple of new cinema openings to get excited about out in Utah. The Larry H. Miller Megaplex circuit expanding their cinema entertainment center concept that is called the Larry H. Miller Sports Plus Entertainment. That's incorporating the Megaplex movie theater brand with a couple of the attractions that we're used to seeing in family entertainment centers. A number of locations scheduled to open in 2024 and 2025 in a number of cities across Utah. We've got cities and towns like Centerville, Vineyard, and St. George in Utah having some of these cinema entertainment centers coming to their hometowns. A great evolution in terms of how we understand movies and movie going as a destination for families, as an affordable entertainment option for people around the country. This coming to Utah from the leading exhibitor in the state. Yeah. And Daniel, speaking of those family entertainment centers, this is, it rolls around every three months, quarterly earnings call period. You can tune in to our episode next Thursday, where we go over the updates from from various publicly traded uh, companies who have filed their Q4 and end of year 2023 results. Cinemark is one of those companies. So obviously I'll, I'll be going over what came out in that call next week. But just because we're talking about a uh, Cinema chains adding family entertainment centers. They do plan to introduce uh, two of uh, two concepts. And a quote from Sean Gamble, CEO of Cinemark, says, we reactivated our new built development pipeline and added a new family entertainment center concept to our array of theater designs with plans to open two of these new concepts by the end of the year. So Cinemark uh, getting in on that as well. I, I believe they've been in on it before in partnership with different parties, but uh, definitely big news on the FEC front. Absolutely. And uh, rounding out our conversation here this week before we go into our feature interview, this happened right as you stopped recording last week's episode with Chad Kennerick, where you went over the trailers from the Super Bowl. Rebecca, the viewership number figures are in for Marvel's Deadpool and Wolverine trailer scoring the highest number of trailer views of all time within the first 24 hours of launch. This movie, even though it's rated R, is quickly, quickly becoming the most anticipated movie of the year. I think it is 
a lot of our picks for the highest potential grossing movie of 2024. Yeah. I mean, and the trailer like definitely leaned into the whole like, uh, this is R-rated and it's Disney. So it, it seems like, you know, often we talk about an R rating, certainly for a superhero, for a comic book film being more of a potential detriment than something that would help the film. But that is definitely not the case with Deadpool. It's it's leaning into the fact that it's now Disney. Yeah, they're looking at 365 million views in the first 24 hours, which is, that's a big number. I mean, geez. Great figures, great figures. Uh, the last time we heard of figures like this in terms of a trailer launch was for Spider-Man No Way Home. We have the same amount of buzz now for this title scheduled for July 28th, more or less the same corridor that uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer used to launch their respective theatrical releases. I'm excited to see how this opens later on this summer. This is an interesting dichotomy. I mean, we saw how much money an R-rated movie like Oppenheimer could make. Now let's see how much an R-rated movie like Deadpool can make. Two completely opposite ends of the Very different of films. The spectrum. Yeah. Very, very different films. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. Your voice is right down to the, its last 10%. I, I know you're tell. feeling under the weather, uh, but thank you for joining us today. And now, without any further ado, after the break, my interview with three of the engineers that brought to life RGB laser projection technology. They are going to be winning an Academy Award for Technical Innovation at Tomorrow Ceremony in Los Angeles. That's coming up after the break. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with the three Academy Award winners from Barco Cinema, winning that award for the technical merits in bringing the innovations from the Barco RGB laser to cinemas near you, because it's in a technology that's really expanding everywhere around the world. Uh, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you guys to quickly introduce yourselves and your position at Barco. Okay, I'm uh, Walter Dusselink. I'm currently VP R&D for cinema. So heading all the cinema development uh, related projectors and image processing devices uh, for the cinema industry. I am uh, Goran Stojmanovic. I uh, am currently R&D director in Barco Projection. And at the time of uh, RGB laser development, I was a product manager for uh, those projectors. And I'm Peter Janssens, senior expert optical design and responsible for uh, the design of the laser light sources of Barco's projectors. Wonderful. And uh, as we said in the introduction, you guys were integral in bringing this technology to cinemas. It's, it's wonderful to have laser just be a technology that keeps on expanding, keeps on reaching more viewers. I think it's good for the moviegoer in terms of the image quality and it's great for cinemas in terms of energy and cost savings we've been seeing that across the years but let's get started with the beginning of this technology of course we do the transition to digital cinema the xenon lamps are out there it took a long time for that transition to happen and it seems like xenon is doing fine but there's a potential for more can you tell us about your role in the development of RGB laser? Let's start with uh, Wouter. How did you get involved and what was your role in bringing this together? Oh, I was already working for Summit in cinema when that cool new project started in our, into our central lab within Barco called Laser Projection. So uh, Peter, who can tell you more about it, was already 
working for quite a, a bit longer on that. But then this uh, yeah, this project really started, and the idea was to make a killer product, a 60,000 lumen laser projector to showcase what we could all do with laser. So make the brightest, meanest projector out there, which we then showcased in Galveston in 2012 to an expert cinema crowd. So it took a lot of work with talking with laser suppliers, but also on the legal side, on which Goran can probably tell you more about, um, to get laser accepted into the market, not just by exhibitors, but also by FDA, for instance, which was a crucial part into getting where we are right now with, a, as you said, a lot of uh, laser projectors out there and ever growing. So Peter, tell me about the start of this. When Water gets involved, there's already a project in place. What were the origins? So it, it all started about in 2007. It was a starting up in Barco. Uh, projectors were still using lamps, sometimes LED, but mostly lamps all over the place. And uh, well, there was all these new concepts were flying around that a laser would, would be the ultimate light source for, for projectors, bringing many benefits. And there were a lot of promises. So a small project was started within Barco to explore all these promises where we can make them come true or maybe in some points, um, yeah, there are some limitations in the technology that we don't know yet. So all this needed to be explored. And for that purpose, we started with a, a very small scale laser projector just in the lab on an optical breadboard to explore uh, everything that uh, comes together with laser projection. It's wonderful to see how this project came together leading up to that 2012 demo in Galveston, Texas. Goran, on your end, when did you get involved in the project and what was your role? So I started in Barco Cinema at um, around the Galveston demo, so late uh, 2011, and uh, took over the project as a product manager uh, in 2012-13. And one of my first targets by my boss was get accepted by Peter and Walter. And... Uh, I hope I achieved that goal, but uh, in the meantime, we also know that we achieved a lot of laser projection. And uh, my role in the project was basically to steer the development uh, in terms of making the right technology decisions uh, in accordance with what the market wants and what the market needs. So uh, there was a lot of discussions with the market, with the studios, with the cinemas at that moment in time. And uh, we were trying to figure out, test different ideas, different hypothesis and different products uh, and in accordance with the market. So my role was uh, to guide that. And it looks like it was uh, smooth sailing to, to get the technology over the line. But of course, every time you bring in a new technology, it's not as simple as just wishing it into existence. Let's go over some of the difficult moments and some of the high points in making sure the laser technology worked. Uh, let's start with uh, Peter from the beginning of the process. What were some of your best memories, some of those high points and then if you can follow up with some of the difficulties that you guys had along the way and how you fixed them. Yeah, one of the high points, I would say, was just that I really like technology and being able to, to play around with optics, with lasers, and to try to, uh, to make a, a lab tabletop mount projector that was actually delivering an image onto the screen that was very exciting for me. Um, of course, as it goes with any uh, new technology, um, this very basic projector revealed some some uh, challenges as well. So we saw that the image quality was not uh, what we actually wanted it to be. 
So uh, it was due to the fact that we, we did not have the right lasers. Uh, they were not available at that point in time. So there was still some work to be done on that. Uh, also, disappointment a bit was on the cost of the lasers at that point in time. So the, these lasers were uh, uh, very expensive. And so that was also hampering us to uh, bring a product on the market. And uh, Walter, on your end, what were some of those uh, difficulties? How did you get over them? And some of those high points in, in getting the project over the line? Well, I think on high points, it, it was a very fun time. We were exploring new technologies with a very small, dedicated team. So, um, yeah, with a clear goal, be the first to bring this to the market at a very high brightness. Um, and then showcasing that in Galveston, as I said before, was really the high point of that first stage. Um, but of course, if you talk about the, the brightest projector in the world, it also means that uh, there's a lot of uh, light that needs to go through your system. So, yeah, um, on multiple cases, we, of course, burn some stuff in the projector, <laughs> giving it an, uh, it wouldn't be It wouldn't be fun if there wasn't yeah, burning indeed, of stuff. Indeed. That's completely <laughs> fine. <laughs> so we burned and crashed uh, during the development. Um, but then, of course, also try to find solutions for those uh, those difficulties. Um, and in the end, we managed to do that, So which, uh, which actually was a big energy booster in the end. Um, I can imagine that being a, a nice bump as you reach the finish line. Uh, Goran, on your end, what were some of those high points, some difficult moments as, as you begin to develop this technology? Uh, when I think back at that period of time, um, to me, it's a, a, a heroic time. It was almost mythical. Uh, it was a time when we had a lot of unexplored domain and territory, uh, whether it's technology or marketing or image quality or, whether, or regulatory and, and so on. We had laser enthusiasts. We had people evangelizing the laser technology to, to studios or, or, or cinemas alike. So it was really uh, a time of hero heroics and, uh, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of highlights and, and, and uh, also some um, sometimes less pleasant moments, of course. I think what I definitely remember from the positive side are the gasps of people seeing a RGB laser projection on a big screen for the first time, you know, going from lamp to, to, to this type of very bright, very you know, excellent 3D, uh, uniform, stable image, no flicker, all that stuff really left people breathless. And for me, that was the pinnacle of, uh, of that period. That, that's why I kept doing it. Yeah, I, I think once audiences can see that difference between xenon and laser, they understand what the technology means in terms of MOE going. Now, Goran mentioned some of these special qualities that RGB laser can bring. Uh, Peter and Walter, can you guys expand on that? Why do you believe that RGB laser technology is so special and, and groundbreaking in terms of projection? Well, first and foremost, of course, I think the color gamut that you can obtain, so more vivid, more bright colors, um, make it really exceptional. Uh, next to that, the brightness levels we can achieve. I think back in the days, 3D was pretty dim, um, coming from a xenon-based projector. Now with the amount of light we can throw onto a screen and also keep it stable over time, which is uh, difficult uh, to do with the xenon lamps, um, makes that you can get an overall um, better experience throughout the life of your projector. Um, that's, of course, on the viewer side. As you mentioned in the beginning, also on the on the exhibitor side, power consumption, um, ease of use, no lamp replacements needed anymore, are also key factors in in in, uh, in why 
uh, RGB laser is superior to xenon. Absolutely. And uh, Peter, on your end, what did you think was that impact, not only to audiences, but also to filmmakers and creatives? We heard that Walter saying the digital 3D technology, it's a before and after when you talk about the impact that laser can bring to these projections. Uh, yes, indeed. There is certainly a big change uh, from xenon to, to laser. And um, before the Galveston demo, we, we, we had another demo of a, a smaller scale laser projector that we did to the creative community of, uh, in Hollywood. And uh, it, it was very in interesting to see how, how curious people were to see what the advantages of laser, uh, what, what it would bring for them, how they could use it for their uh, upcoming releases and so on. Uh, that was a, a really nice experience for me to actually get into contact with these uh, creative people of Hollywood because uh, I had seen many movies before, but you never see the persons behind the, the, the movies. I mean, the technical persons behind the movies. And how, how did they react? I'm really curious because it's one thing, a moviegoer that, that can be surprised and, and has a pleasant experience at the movies, but it's a completely other thing when you're presenting in front of that creative community in Hollywood. They have expectations. It's a more demanding audience, maybe a more difficult demo to convince that community than anyone else. Can you go over what those reactions were? Well, um, one of the, the main points that they were interested at was the possibilities of the wider color gamut. Uh, we were also showing, uh, and, and that is also with our laser projectors, we are achieving a much better uh, image quality in terms of uniformity and contrast uh, to them. So they really wanted to, to know uh, how, how this comes as a benefit for them. Yeah, I, I can see that being a, a main point here in in bringing that technology forward. Goran, do you remember those early demos? Uh, not only in Galveston, but the earlier demo uh, with the creative community in Hollywood. What were some of those reactions that, that stood out for you? As Peter said, a lot of people were very curious. Um, I remember a, a time when we uh, set up uh, one of those uh, early proof of concepts, as we call it, technology demos in, uh, in, in Burbank. And we invited a lot of colorists, a lot of people around just to, you know, to compare it with land-based projectors, to lay their hands on it, do a bit of color grading and so on. Uh, those, was, those were re really uh, exciting times uh, for everybody. People just love to play with this new technology. And what, what they really wanted to do is uh, see how far they can push it, how far they can push the technology in terms of colors, in terms of you know, image depth uh, and, other, and, and other parameters. And I must say that those were the early days, but even afterwards, with our finished product, we also went and installed it in a number of high-profile uh, Hollywood studios. And that relationship has just made our products better. Because, as you said, um, those people are um, demanding. Uh, the colorists, uh, people around post-production are really demanding. Uh, they will take around the technology from inside out. They would like to understand how it, how it works. and in this interaction, they just helped us make the projectors or our technology better. So along every axis. Was that the moment that you realized, Goran, that you guys had cracked laser projection? Or when was it when you personally realized, okay, this isn't a proof of concept anymore. Laser is a reality. When did that happen for you? For me, it happened uh, when we had the demonstrations to the, uh, to the cinemas. The cinema. So one thing is to have a very exciting technology uh, where everybody loves and you know they would like to, to play with it and, and look at it, which is really great. 
but you only crack laser projection when you get acceptance from the cinemas. And uh, for me, that was the moment. And that has happened, I think, around 2014 with the launch of our uh, first projector. So seeing them, operating them, real scale, you know, real time at, on, on a larger scale in different cinemas in the world, for me, that was the moment. Yeah, I remember that 2014 demo. Uh, I was there, I remember as early as uh, CinemaCon 2015, 2014, Cine Europe, where, when I'm seeing the rollout of this technology, and it's a really obvious before and after. Peter, on your end, you've been involved here from the very beginning. When did you finally stop sweating it and say like, okay, there's nothing to worry about here. This is the future of movie going. Well, it's it's not one step, I would say, for me. But after the demo that I mentioned in uh, Hollywood, I started to understand, yeah, this is something that uh, people are really interested in. And then with the Galveston demo, just seeing the audience, like uh, with their mouth open, watching the ultra bright images on, on the screen with the perfect image quality, then I knew, okay, this is the the, the, the real thing that we... That we need to develop and that we have to bring to the market and then just there was still some, uh, still uh, one small step uh, to be taken that was to to enable also the the 6p 3d and that was then yet an uh, an, um, an next small scale prototype we we didn't prototype that on a 60,000 lumen projector this was a small prototype but when that was done i knew that this would uh, would become a killer product and it certainly has, as you see, the adoption of cinemas ever since the launch of this technology. Walter, on your end, when did it become real for you? When did you realize that Laser was here to stay? Well, internally in Barker, we were already convinced, of course, that it was going to be here to stay. Um, so we invested for multiple years on this technology. Um, and I really launched the product in 2014. But it really came came public when we, when we installed our first units, uh, very close by, actually, to the Cortec facility. Um, and I really got to see The Hobbit uh, real life in a big room uh, with a lot of people, perfect sound, perfect image. And then that really made it uh, like really real. And after that, yeah, orders kept on coming in and we kept on developing the next generations of laser projectors. Yeah, and we're seeing those generations continue to evolve different classes of laser projectors at different price points, right? Those early concerns of cost. Now, not really so much of a concern. You have your entry-level projectors and then your dual-stack projectors that can handle premium auditoriums. A diverse product line that has evolved in the last 10 years is premium cinema technology and also a step up for standard technology. So obviously, congratulations for this great development of the technology. But a bigger congratulations is in store because you're getting uh, recognized uh, not only for your contributions, but the contributions of your entire team at Barco that helped bring this technology. The Academy granting you a technical innovation award here at the Academy Awards. Um, yeah, what does this mean to you guys to, to get this recognition from the Hollywood community? Yeah, I must say I'm, I'm very proud to get this uh, recognition, of course. Uh, I we have spent with the whole team uh, yeah, for years to develop uh, laser projectors with the right image quality and so on. And then to be, uh, to be honored by Eddie Akandi, that is, of course, uh, yeah, it, it gives a great feeling. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy about that, of course. Yeah. How about you guys, uh, Goran? Uh, what was your reaction to, to this award? Likewise, it was um, the day that... Uh, that we got note that we received the award. I was having a birthday party at my brother-in-law's house. 
I got a text and I read my email and, and I just couldn't believe it. We know it was in running. We were uh, nominated probably a year and a half before that, but you know, a year and a half passes by, you completely forget about this thing and suddenly it is there, right? And uh, so it was really, really unreal at first. Then we started chatting amongst each other to, to understand, okay, uh, hey guys, you know, we won an Academy Award. And uh, then it started dawning upon us, you know, all the memories come back from that period of time that we discussed about and also thinking about uh, good things with a lot of our colleagues that worked on the project. We, we had a lot of projects since then, also an RGB projection, another laser projection in Barco. A lot of those people are still in Barco and, uh, um, you know, we feel honored, but we also uh, want to evolve everybody else. So uh, we're planning a, a bit of a drink and celebration for everybody involved in the project soon. And how about you, Walter? What was uh, your reaction to, to winning this award? What does it mean to you? Well, it means a lot, of course. Eh? And on a personal level, it's it is great honor that we, we, we get bestowed upon us. Um, but also for Barco, it's a big a big testament to what we can do as an innovative com uh, company in, in the cinema industry. Um, I got the news on a Friday evening when I was relaxing with some friends. I got the email in and, of course, couldn't uh, stay quiet there as well. So I had to share the news both uh, to my friends as, as within Barco. And then the whole weekend long, uh, I, I got texts, I got messages from, from uh, colleagues at Barco um, saying, yeah, this is great. We need to celebrate. Uh, so it was really, really, really great and a, a big uh, honor to get this uh, award. Well, congratulations to the three of you and to your entire team over at Barco for this award. Uh, a great recognition. But of course, uh, beyond the recognition is the technology that we now have in our screens that moviegoers might notice, but might not know all the work that came in to make it a reality. Thank you so much for your efforts. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you again to our guests from Barco Cinema. The Box Office Podcast was produced and edited by Box Office Pro in collaboration with Record Edit Podcast. Don't forget to tune in next week. We will be back with Rebecca, Polly, and I going over some of the quarterly earnings results from exhibitors so far this year. We will have exclusive interviews with Views Tim Richards and with Cineplex's Ellis Jacob. That is in next week's version of this podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>